Hey, everybody, and welcome to This Week on Point North. I'm Alistair Stevens. It's the start of another week. I hope we're all recovering appropriately from the big game. I guess I'm not legally allowed to refer to it as the superb owl. I suppose we just, we're just we not allowed to use that term for, for marketing and copyright reasons, so we'll just refer to it as the big game weekend. I hope you all had a wonderful time. I, of course, did not watch the big game. I was busy watching Star Trek movies, which is, you know, in my own way, a celebration of of the the collaborative power of shared culture and, and common purpose and common use. That's pretty much the same thing, right? But there were some fantastic trailers unexpectedly released during the uh, the intermission for the big game. So we'll talk about those in just a few minutes. First, a quick gloss of what we're going to do this week on Point North. Our schedule begins this evening at uh, 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central. For those of you enrolled in the Between Worlds class, it is the penultimate session for the Between Worlds class. This week, we are going to look at George MacDonald's uh, The Princess and the Goblin, and we're going to look at J.M. Barry's Peter and Wendy and in a broader sense, Peter Pan in general, because we're looking at the foundations of modern fantasy. We're looking at what happened to fantasy storytelling in the late 19th century after the the kind of uh, appropriation of folkloric culture into the modern era by writers like Charles Perrault, by writers like Hans Christian Andersen, by writers like the Brothers Grimm, as we discussed last week. So we've seen the codification of fairy tales. Now, now we have, by this point in our progression through the history of fairy tale and fantasy literature, we have modern fantasy, uh, modern fairy tales. Excuse me. We have a modern perspective on pretty much all of the fairy tales that we know, and little has happened to those stories in the course of the last, well, in some cases, almost three hundred years. You know, we've got modern versions. In in the 19th century that we can use as a foundation for the evolution of fantasy literature as this distinct offshoot of that narrative tradition aimed more at adult readers and more interested in, more engaged with, more progressive with regard to acts of complete secondary creation. You know, we are now on the path that will lead us to the foundation, the cornerstone of real genuine 20th century fantasy with the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. And then ultimately, of course, into modern fantasy, into the works of writers like Patrick Rothfuss and Madeleine Lengel to a certain extent, and uh, Catherine Kerr and Anne McCaffrey and, and all the many, many fantasy uh, authors that we can now identify. But George R.R. Martin, of course, should not go unmentioned in that regard. So that is going to be tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central. If you are enrolled in that class, hey, stay tuned to your email. You'll be getting a class link within the next hour. Then tomorrow evening at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central, we have Dear Mr. Potter 42, which I have titled Unforgivable. We're going to be talking a little more about Mad-Eye Moody. We'll be catching up a little on, on where we left last week's session, but we will also be pushing on into a discussion of the Unforgivable Curses. One of the most interesting and, and stimulating and... Uh, complex ideas presented to us in the span of the Harry Potter series. It's easy, I think, sometimes to dismiss the unforgivable curses as a piece of fantastical world building of the order of Quidditch and House Elves. But I think the unforgivable curses are, well, are much more than that, particularly in the context of Goblet of Fire, of course. Um, so I'm very much looking forward to talking about those chapters and delving deep into the philosophy of the unforgivable curses is basically what I'm most interested in. What is evil? Why are these things unforgivable? What do we mean by the word unforgivable in the frame of Harry Potter, where forgiveness and culpability and moral responsibility and moral agency are so often confused, are, are so often unclear, are so often ambiguous? We're going to have a really great discussion about all of those topics tomorrow evening. Then on Thursday, we're also playing catch up in There and Back Again, you guys. The 51st episode of There and Back Again, The Crown of the Fallen King, will take us through the end of last week's reading, basically, in order to try and make the, uh, in order to make the schedule for There and Back Again work, in order to kind of make good on the initial promise that I made. I was trying to dash through uh, three chapters, two and a half chapters last week, and made it through about one chapter, because we were talking about 
about Faramir and what is a boy to do when we're confronted with the possibility of talking more about Faramir of Gondor. So we're going to look at... Um, at the crossroads, essentially. We're going to be looking at this transit out of Athelion to the very borders of Mordor, and we'll conclude with that enormously evocative and thought-provoking package, that, that, that provocative passage where Sam and Frodo find the statue of the fallen Gondorian king now wreathed in flowers. That's going to be a really interesting, uh, a really interesting discussion, so I'm very much looking forward to that. And then, of course, speaking of adding extra sessions... This week was supposed to be the last session in our Wrinkle in Time book club. It will instead be our penultimate session in our Wrinkle in Time book club because I just like talking about stories, you guys. We're just going to spend even more time talking about Madeleine Lengel's classic 1962 novel, A Wrinkle in Time. So we're going to have our penultimate discussion of that book this week, our ultimate discussion of that book next week, and then we're going to launch directly into Neil, uh, Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett's Good Omens one of my very favorite books of all time. So I'm very much looking forward to delving into that. Stay tuned for more. I'm hoping to have at least the first stage of our polling process for the next, maybe maybe the next book club book, maybe the next two book club books. I kind of like this system where we, where we know in advance what it is that we're going to cover. So I'm trying to get that laid out this week so that we can uh, have that in place by the time we start Good Omens in a couple of weeks' time. A lot of really fun discussions coming. Uh, Jenna's asking, what chapter will that be up to? Is that for... Let me see. In the context of what, Jenna? I'm sorry, I wasn't keeping up with the chat. I do apologize. Um, in in Dear Mr. Potter, we are covering up to, what is The Unforgivable Curses? Chapter 13, maybe? I think that's where we are now. Uh, and then for there and back again, we're going to be covering up to the end of Chapter 10. Gosh, I'm just... Uh, no, not chapter 10. Chapter 7. Chapter 7 is the crossroads. So we'll be looking at chapter seven of uh, chapters 6 and 7 of book 4 of The Lord of the Rings to cover the transit up to the crossroads. So it'll be a ton of fun. I'm, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to getting into all of that. 13, maybe 14 for, for Goblet of Fire. I forget, but it's the end of the Unforgivable Curses chapter. We'll be reading through to that, uh, which is conveniently enough the chapter entitled to The Unforgivable Curses. There's a lot to, to get. The, uh, Aaron's saying here, so, 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 I'm just fine not dashing it all through there and back again, taking a nice hobbity walk through Middle Earth and don't forget second tea. Well, we've had our first tea, but what about second tea? Yes, good. So many books, says Janet. No, I know. It's, it's a lot of material to cover. If you guys can't keep up with the live sessions, I completely understand. And of course, in both, uh, both uh, Dear Mr. Potter and There and Back Again, we're coming up on some nice, clean breaking points where you can you know, skip ahead and jump back in with the live sessions if that is a thing that you want to do. And at some point, probably at some point in March, I think I'm going to schedule a little... Uh, a little vacation because the website needs some work and I have some other projects that I want to develop. So uh, maybe we'll, we'll suspend our live broadcasts for a week there. And of course, hey, look at this effortless segue into talking about some of the trailers that came out of Super Bowl Sunday. Of course, there's some story in Star Wars stuff uh, coming. Uh, just last week, I think, maybe even the last couple of weeks, I've been talking with a certain amount of concern about the lack of a trailer for Solo, the upcoming Han Solo anthology movie. Well, we got a teaser trailer during the Super Bowl, and this morning, as I'm recording this, we got the first trailer, and it's a knockout. It's a knockout. It's really good. There's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of fan service, which I think we might expect. And there are a couple of scenes which make me wonder about the tonality of this film. There is a speeder power slide in particular, which makes me wonder about the, the tone of this film and about the texture of this film. To what degree this is going to feel like 
a genuine Star Wars story and to what degree it is going to feel like something else. This is going to be such an interesting point of discussion when we can look at the solo movie alongside, you know, Rogue One and kind of what we're doing in the expanded Star Wars space right now. I'm really excited to have those discussions. When that movie comes out on Memorial Day, it turns out that May is going to be a knockout month for movies, you guys, because I'm also looking ahead to Infinity War. We've got a new TV spot for Infinity War. Nothing really revelatory if you've paid close attention to the Infinity War trailer that has been released. Uh, we get a couple of, of interesting shots. We get a better shot of the uh, interesting Wakandan shield that Captain America seems to be wielding. Shields that Captain America seems to be wielding in that final shot where they're all running toward the camera. That had been observed, of course. And now we have a better sense of how that is going to work. There's an interesting shot of Tony Stark as he's kind of taking off his sunglasses where we get some kind of digital effect around his shoulders and neck, which seems to be the Iron Man armor taking form. It's possible that we're moving toward a nanite-based uh, Iron Man armor in this movie, which, as someone who loves tracking the development of the Iron Man armor, A, seems completely consistent with what we've seen in the comic books, and B, seems really, really cool and interesting. We get a little shot of Wanda and Vision. There's a lot to to love in that trailer. Nothing that is absolutely... Absolutely revelatory, though, in terms of Infinity War, but I can't wait, obviously, to see that movie and to talk about it at great length over on Excelsior, the podcast from Common Room Radio that I produce with Sarah Kate Pizant and Vinton Bain, which I think I mentioned in every single one of these live shows now because I'm just having an absolute blast doing that show. If you've enjoyed my discussions on Excelsior, you should know that today we have our discussion of The Unstoppable Wasp, the first volume of The Unstoppable Wasp, which is a delight is an incalculable delight. I have been wanting to read that book. Literally, when we sat down last year to begin Excelsior, we had a very short list of books that we wanted to cover, and The Unstoppable Wasp was on that list. We already knew that we wanted to talk about it, and we just haven't had the opportunity until now. It is a knockout. So we discussed the first volume of Unstoppable Wasp, which is the first four issues of that, what turned into a limited run, and um, the all-new, all-different Avengers issue 13, I think, which is the crossover with Civil War II, which focuses on Nadia Pym. She is a great character. I'm a big fan of the traditional Wasp, of, of Janet Van Dyne, of, of Janet Pym. Um, I think she's a really interesting character, particularly in the early days of the Avengers back in the 60s, up, up to about the mid-70s, I suppose. And even then, you know, continues to be a fascinating and provocative character. Her presence in the, the foundation of the Avengers, her presence in the foundation of the 616 comic book universe is just brilliant. So it was great to have an opportunity to talk about her. We also this week have our uh, upcoming commentary track for Captain America, the first Avenger. That'll go out on Friday. I cannot wait to talk about that movie. I, I love the Cap trilogy above all other marvel movies i think uh cap is my guy and that trilogy is is really very good and the more that i watch the first avengers excuse me the more i enjoy it so that'll be released on friday is that everything? Am I, am I all caught up? Oh, and then next week on Excelsior, we're going to be looking at the first half of Hulu's Marvel's Runaways. We're going to be looking at the first half of that series. Then we're going to take a skip week to talk about the new Black Panther movie, which comes out next week. You guys, can you believe it? And then we'll conclude with our thoughts on the back half of the first season of Runaways. I do a lot of podcasting. I don't know if this has become in any way apparent, but I talk a lot on the internet. I talk a lot about comic books and stuff on the internet. Just, you should know this about me if we're going to be friends. And we are, we are going to be friends, aren't we? So all of that was fascinating. The solo teaser was enticing, but not quite there. The solo trailer, very, very good. I have a couple of questions, but no real concerns. Donald Glover looks fantastic as Lando Calrissian. We'll talk about that in, in uh, great depth, I'm sure, when that movie comes out. Uh, I'm also fascinated by the fact that that movie appears to be taking a heist movie structure, which is the right choice. That is a really good choice for that film. So I can't wait to, uh, to delve more into that. But that is not the only trailer that was released last night, or indeed the only thing that was released last night, because it turns out that Netflix has done something 
well, not quite unprecedented, but damn near unprecedented. Certainly, I believe, unprecedented for Netflix. I am talking, of course, about the Cloverfield Paradox. It's been 10 years. It's been 10 years since the original Cloverfield movie, you guys. It came out in 2008, and I was involved at that time in the alternate reality game community surrounding the, the release of the first Cloverfield movie, and in part because of that community, in part because of my excitement about that movie, I loved Cloverfield. I, I was absolutely consumed by it, as I've said before in these live discussions. I am a huge fan of found footage as a, as a narrative technique. I love the immediacy and the intimacy that you get from found footage. I like how ambitious found footage directors often are. So I thoroughly enjoyed that movie. And then, of course, 10 Cloverfield Lane came out, which was a very different kind of film. This very tense... Uh, very oppressive, very, very claustrophobic movie that in its final act, no spoilers, but in its final act explodes, explodes in every possible direction. And it took me many viewings of 10 Cloverfield Lane to figure out exactly what I thought about, about the film and about that discordance, that choice right there at the end of the third act to blow the doors off the movie and to not be in any way coy with the audience, which is a bold choice, uh, a purposeful choice, and I think a, both a well-intentioned and a well-executed choice. I'm still not 100% sure on where I am with 10 Cloverfield Lane as a film, but as a part of the expanding Cloverfield franchise, I suppose, I'm super into it. So last night during the Super Bowl, Netflix dropped the trailer for The Cloverfield Paradox, which had previously been known uh, in, in you know coded production as The God Particle, I believe. Um, and then brilliantly announced, oh, also, it's just available. It's going to be available the minute the game is over. You know, this is this is a trailer with a lead time of like an hour and a half. So you can go and watch it. It's available on Netflix right now, at least here in the U.S. I haven't seen it yet, but I think I know what I'm doing after the Between Worlds class this evening, let me tell you. Um, I'm fascinated by the Cloverfield phenomenon, firstly. I'm equally fascinated at this point in time by Netflix's marketing strategy. This idea that they can completely own a marketing space through immediacy, through the, the application of immediacy. Oh, you want this thing? This isn't coming out in May. This isn't coming out in October. This isn't coming out at Christmas. This is coming out right now. That does seem to be playing powerfully to the strength and the ubiquity of Netflix. Netflix is effectively a ubiquitous broadcast platform here in the US, at least not quite, of course, and I'm sure that their marketing managers would really like greater ubiquity, would like greater market penetration, but functionally, it is. You either have Netflix or you know someone who has Netflix or you are not at all interested in Netflix. Like that that seems to be where people are on the scale even after the recent uh after the recent price hikes and that's a really powerful position to be in. That is the closest thing that we have, I might argue, to old school, you know, network broadcast, like like mid 80s network broadcast, like finale of MASH, finale of Cheers, you know, Twin Peaks era network broadcast. This is a platform that allows you huge penetration across a number of different demographics, but but obviously very marketable demographics. But brilliantly, Netflix doesn't have to care about those marketable demographics because it is a subscription service. It's, it's a fascinating time to be watching the evolution of television and to see this kind of, of audacity. Certainly, there is an argument right now, and I have seen no critical response to the Cloverfield Paradox at all, so I know nothing about this film and about its, its relative quality. There is an argument that, hey, when this happens in video games, when video games are announced and then released and oftentimes embargoed for review so that reviewers can't even can't even um, release their thoughts on a given game until it's been in the marketplace for a week, that is usually the sign of a very bad game. 
that is certainly possibly the case with the Cloverfield Paradox. It is possible that they spent a lot of money on this thing, that they knew that the word of mouth around it wouldn't be good, so they got it out to the audience as fast as possible, hoping that people would ride that wave of enthusiasm and watch the thing, even if ultimately the response is not great. It's a possibility. We'll see how that works out. Let me see. I'm going to catch up here with uh, with the chat, you guys, since I'm just chatting. Uh, Jenna says that she's never seen Cloverfield or 10 Cloverfield Lane. Yes, yes. Um, oh, we're talking about... Um, if you're into if you're into modern supernatural horror, I would recommend Cloverfield. I think that Cloverfield still holds up. I think the central conceit of Cloverfield is is still very good. I mean, let's be clear here. This is not a perfect movie. It's real flabby in its third act, you guys. And it plays with some tropes which which even in 2008 felt a little regressive. It is all too willing to damsel the pretty girl. That is in fact, the anchor point of the entire plot of the story. And it pushes back against that in a slightly postmodern way, but but inconsistently and erratically, right? It is still the story of the square-jawed hero type going to rescue his girly, which is not great. And I kind of wish that we'd, we'd been able to invert that. 10 Cloverfield Lane, on the other hand, inverts that beautifully by handing a lot of power to, to Mary Elizabeth Winstead's uh, protagonistic character there. Yeah. Let me see here. As I try and catch up. Yeah, Jenna says, because we're in an age of remakes, it's cool. But like, guys, original ideas, please. Um, yeah, I mean, the thing about remakes is not that we are bereft of original ideas. It is that we are bereft of security when it comes to producing entertainment, right? It is very tempting in an age where movies cost fantastic sums of money and have to cost fantastic sums of money if they're going to make any impact at all. Parenthetically, yes, of course, there are lightning strikes. Yes, of course, you can still go out and make a movie for $2 million or for, for $45,000 and have it be a hit. That can still happen. But it is now less likely than it has ever been that that is going to be the case. So we have to invest fantastic amounts of money into movies, which means that they are oftentimes creatively a little safer than we might want them to be and oftentimes are at least trading off of a well-recognized name, right? This is... This is <laughs> As I said, I just spent the weekend watching Star Trek movies. I actually spent the weekend watching the new trilogy of Star Trek movies. I watched the J.J. Abrams Star Trek, the Star Trek Into Darkness, and Star Trek Beyond. Star Trek is fine. It's it's a decent movie. Um, Star Trek Into Darkness, I think, is really bad. I think it's I think it's a very very bad film. Uh, and Star Trek Beyond is about two thirds of a really interesting and good and and thoughtful and provocative film. There are elements in Star Trek Beyond which feel more like Star Trek than anything else that the new trilogy has done, but this still isn't Star Trek, right? It doesn't need to be Star Trek. There is nothing stopping these people from, from starting a new sci-fi franchise. They could have started a new, uh, a new story with a new ship. You know, they could have done what, what Seth MacFarlane has done uh, over on TV. They could have just started something that is Star Trek-like, but not necessarily Star Trek. They chose not to do that because Star Trek has this giant name, because it has this, this huge thing. I will at some point also talk about Discovery. I'm almost caught up with Discovery now. Um, Discovery is Discovery is in many ways more like Star Trek than anything we've had since Elements of Voyager. Elements of Voyager, but but really maybe since DS9. I think that that well, although mm, okay, if I'm going to say elements of Voyager, then I should also say elements of Enterprise, right? I think there are things in Enterprise that I think there are things that Enterprise did very, very well in the Star Trek mold that, that embodied the Star Trek philosophy, which which I really like. Um, the problem with Discovery is that it is ultimately it is ultimately reflective. It is ultimately uh, referential to the source material in a way that 
I, I'm stunned by. I'm not going to give away any any plot spoilers for Star Trek Discovery in case you guys haven't seen it. I will probably do a one shot on that at some point. But it is more like Star Trek fan fiction than I expected it to be. And that's not to say, certainly, I'm not decrying fan fiction. As you guys know, I am the last person in the world who would decry fan fiction. When I say fan fiction, I don't mean in that it is amateurish and ill-formed. Fan fiction oftentimes is neither of those things. But it feels like fan fiction in the sense that a an utter slavish love of the original text is required if Star Trek Discovery is going to work for you which is a bold choice. Again, this is an opportunity to do something new. This is an opportunity to expand the franchise. And this ultimately is the creative argument against remakes and reboots and, and you know, rebrandings of this sort. Ultimately, the argument against this is that it is inherently reductive. If you start a new Star Trek series, you are bound by all of the things that Star Trek is, but you can't do most of them because times have moved on. We can't do Kirk smooching up on Alien of the Week, although, you know, the movies aren't against that, it turns out. But you have to limit yourself more and more and more. You are you are you are exhausting that creative potential contained within the core of that idea. Ultimately, you have to set that aside and do something new. I'm really hoping that we do something new in that space. I'm really hoping that we get. I can't imagine that it's ever going to happen, you guys. I can't imagine that it's ever going to happen. But I want the the big budget Star Trek reboot that takes a, that that is basically set up to be a seven season tv show in the old style in the style of next gen and ds9 and voyager and even in the style that enterprise was supposed to be before enterprise was was uh was killed before its time um i would love to see a new star trek that is in a new space i would love to go back to the prime timeline i'm just not in love with the timeline that we've had in these movies i think give me one last movie right this is my pitch give me one last jj abrams inspired lens flare inflected chris pine and zachary quinto uh movie give me that movie that wraps up this bubble timeline and restores the original prime timeline and at the end of that movie we do what we did right at the end of enterprise where we have this montage of ships and we have the captains splitting that 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 call to arms, that brilliant opening crawl that we get, the space, the final frontier epigraph that we get at the beginning of good, solid Star Trek. Give me the captains. I can start with Chris Pine as Kirk. That's fine. And we can move up through, well, I guess we can't move up through Archer, but we could move up through, you know, Shatner and we can move up through Picard and up through Janeway and, and Cisco too, and then start something new. For those of you who came up through Next Gen and DS9 and Voyager, we can start something new. That would be my you know, my ambition. The pitch that I always made was uh, was basically to take the idea of Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that show. The idea of Andromeda is that the flagship of the Federation, the Commonwealth in Andromeda, but it's basically the Federation, right? Basically think of the Enterprise. The Enterprise is stranded in the event horizon of a black hole. It is spit out 300 years later to find that civilization has fallen. That's what I want. That's the that's the story that I want. I want the USS Lamplighter going across the galaxy. This this small ship with uh, a tight knit crew, something you know, not even Voyager size, maybe like Defiant size, you know, Nova size, like a a nice small contained science ship going out to spread the light of civilization, make the challenges not military, not 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 existential, certainly not metatextual, right? Where I, I I'm weary now of Star Trek being threatened by people who know too much about Star Trek, which has been the plot now of in a sense, all three of the, the recent movies and kind of Discovery too, I suppose, in, in an interesting way, make the conflicts moral, make them philosophical. Give me something that I can really get my teeth into. Give me a captain who is heroic in that Jean-Luc Picard, Steve Rogers, Captain America sense, right? I want that. I don't think we're ever going to get it, but 
Still, I want it. I want it nonetheless. Um, let me see. <laughs> I'm just paying no attention to the Crowdcast yet. It's a Monday morning, you guys, and I didn't do a podcast yesterday after... Um, I think I did a podcast every day for eight days. At least, no, actually, I did way more than a podcast a day for eight days. I think I did maybe 12 podcasts over the course of eight days, something like that. And uh, yesterday I didn't podcast at all. So now I'm feeling like I've got a lot of energy just pent up and I want to share it all with you, all my enthusiasm with you. Um, Becca says, I want to know what happens now. The Borg have suffered such a blow from Janeway, right? That's a great idea. Let's let's go back to to some of those conflicts. Let's go back to Species 8472 and see what what's up with them. And yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Skeepa's joining us on a train from Edinburgh to Glasgow. Oh no, Skeepa, you're going the wrong way. I'm so sorry. That's that's a terrible thing to be going from Edinburgh to Glasgow. Skeepa and I, for those of you who perhaps don't know, have a little friendly rivalry. Skeepa loves Glasgow. I love Edinburgh. This is just a division in Scotland. This is just, you know, Scottish people love one city or the other. I'm very glad you can join us, Skeepa. Thank you for being here. You may lose that in just a minute. Yes. Uh, let me see here as I scroll back. Um, oh, Aaron's recommending a McKee show. Excellent. Yeah, the... the um, the Federation, the, the, the human and Bajoran rebels uh, fighting against the Cardassian occupation during, the, uh, during the, uh, the time prior to Deep Space Nine. Yeah, that's a really interesting idea. The Cardassians have always been a really interesting foe, a really interesting threat. This is one of the things that makes DS9 spectacular, is that DS9 has better villains than any other show. It has better villains than any of the other Star Trek shows. The Zindi, are you kidding me? The Zindi, give me, you know, the Dominion. Give me the Cardassians. Give me the Romulans. Like, that's a really great setup for a show. Yeah. Um, Becca saying I wasn't ready for Enterprise to be over because I had questions. Season four of Enterprise is legit, you guys. It is, it is solid, decent sci-fi. And that last episode, I know that there are many people who don't like the last episode of Enterprise because... I won't go into details, but because it is an episode of Next Generation, right? Which is the ballsiest move that you can make. I love that setup so much. I, I yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. Hey, again, we're getting closer and closer to that uh, to that uh, Star Trek podcast. Yeah. Jenna's saying on the subject of, of recreations and reboots, this is why I'm much more into TV shows, web series, and podcasts, more so the latter two, because the budget and the audience is much smaller. They're much less concerned with being safe and much more concerned with doing new, awesome things. Absolutely right, Jenna, right? This is... I suppose the the consequence of disintermediation, the consequence of the removal of gatekeepers from our consumption of media, the, the consequence of Netflix's ubiquity, the consequence of the the winnowing of movie production and movie distribution, certainly, so that movies now, uh, movie, uh, movie theaters now give you, whereas 20 years ago, we might have had 20, you know, reasonably sized movies all airing at once. Now we have six and they're all giants one way or another. They're all giant. You know, we might get the one prestige piece in that in that set, but the others are going to be, you know, $300 million budget uh, productions. The that is a consequence of this, this disintermediation, right? That is a consequence of the fact that we now cannot preserve strict and and fenced demographics for our product. The inverse of that, the flip side of that, if you like, the 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 upside to that, the uh, the silver lining around this particular cloud is that it has opened up this grassroots potential for really interesting and engaging uh, storytelling. Right? Ten years ago, we would never have had Welcome to Night Vale. Ten years ago, we would never have had Mabel. Ten years ago, we would never have had Lizzie Bennet Diaries or, or shows like that. We would never have had stories of that sort coming up with basically no budget, coming up with basically nothing and finding their audience nonetheless and building too, right? Welcome to Night Vale is now a, a full-on enterprise. It is, it is a full-on, you know, media conglomerate now. It is a powerful force within the industry, within the podcasting industry, but also within books and within, within live shows and all of that good stuff too. I've just been... Uh, just been re-listening to uh, Hello from the Magic Tavern, which is a very silly podcast that I like a great deal that 
has a really interesting reflexive relationship with its own existence and its own audience. It is, it is the kind of thing that you could only do for all that it apes some of the conventions of you know cheap fantasy satire through the years, cheap fantasy parody through the years, I would argue. For all of that, there is a sincerity and an authenticity that comes from its direct connection with its audience, which also allows it to do some really interesting metatextual storytelling stuff, some, some uh, almost interactive storytelling stuff, which I'm really, really engaged with. Yeah. Yeah, good. Okay. That, I think, though, is going to do Welcome to Night Vale's getting a TV show, too, says Angela. How would I not heard about that? Wow. I mean, it's an obvious play, right? It's an obvious. Good Lord, that is an obvious play. Um, is it live action? Is it animated? That's amazing. Oh, the Lore Podcast is a TV series on Amazon, too. Aaron Mankey's Lore Podcast is... Whew, that is spectacular. I mean, ironically, I suppose the Lore Podcast, for all that it is an excellent podcast, is actually an exception to this, because the Lore Podcast could absolutely have been produced as a relatively low-budget TV show or even a relatively low-budget radio show back in the 1990s, right? The the lineage of the Lore Podcast back to things like Unsolved Mysteries is clear and stark and distinct. It is a very, very good version of that. Like, it is, it is a very good version of that. But in the same way as, I suppose, the only thing that differentiates serial from other kinds of, of investigative reporting is the intimacy afforded by the podcast medium, which is something that I'm very passionate about. It's something that that means a great deal to me personally as a podcast listener, and obviously a great deal to me personally as a podcast producer too, but as a podcast listener, I love the intimacy of podcasts. When you have that earbud in as you're going through your day, podcasts become in a really interesting way <laughs> the soundtrack to your life, horrible scare quotes around that particularly unpleasant phrase, but they do kind of become the soundtrack to your life. But more than that, they begin to, to interact with and integrate with your internal monologue, with your sense of yourself. They become the voice in your head oftentimes. And that can be, that can be a wonderful thing, you know, for podcasts that use their power for good, that can be an absolutely wonderful thing. I do think it's why podcasts tend to skew more positive and enthusiastic than other media, I guess. Um, hmm. I need to give that more thought. I need to. I need to think that through a little more. But there is something interesting about the interaction of that that intimacy that that intimacy layer, if you like, that boundary condition between the podcast and the podcast listener. That is something that I've been fascinated with as a listener of podcasts now for. 12 years, 13 years, 14 years, something like that, like a long way back, a, a long way back. Um, I remember, you know, literally downloading MP3s and putting them on a little Philips MP3 player back before there was any kind of podcast infrastructure at all. I remember going to Podcast Alley and websites like that to find new recommendations for podcasts, um, of which I listened to almost none of those shows now, almost none of those shows now. I think the oldest podcast that I listen to is probably Giant Bomb, um, the video game podcast that comes out every Tuesday from giantbomb.com. That has been running now for, God, 10 years, probably, I guess, ever since uh, ever since uh, Jeff Gersman was fired from GameSpot, I suppose. <laughs> so, that was the inciting incident for the foundation of, of Giant Bomb. And they have absolutely led the way. They have redefined what, what video game podcasting is in their particular, you know, roundtable, slightly bro-y, slightly duty kind of, of, of approach to, to video game podcasting. But yeah, I've been listening to them for probably the longest time. But podcasting is still cycling as an industry, as a creative, as a creative medium, as an art form. It is still cycling. It is still finding its feet. And things don't last forever. The impermanence of entertainment is also something that has been... <sighs> And it's also something with which we have been forced to contend, I suppose, as a culture over the course of the last year, uh, the course of the last few years. This idea that actually your favorite show isn't guaranteed to run forever and ever and ever. And when they do, they oftentimes 
don't turn out great, but yeah. Um, yes, uh, Shannon saying podcasting is far more intimate than talk radio, which had been my reference point. Yes, no, absolutely uh, more intimate than talk radio. Talk radio is radio in general is by necessity a broadcast medium, right? You have to be as wildly inclusive as you can be. You have to to really aggressively try to cultivate the broadest audience possible, the widest audience possible. And you just don't have to do that with podcasts. With podcasts, in fact, the great virtue of podcasts, the, the virtue of the podcasts which are the most successful, I would argue, is that direct one-to-one -one intimacy. It feels like you are being addressed personally. And that's not just an illusion of the form. That, and it's not just a consequence of having that earbud in as you go through your day. It is actually, you know, a, a product of the industry and a product of the way the podcasts are supported. The direct patron model for podcasts is so much more permissive and flexible and nurturing and encouraging for that specific intimacy than the scattershot shotgun advertising approach that is required for radio. You know, I've been thinking a lot over the course of the last two years. What does a radio station founded, uh, funded by direct contribution look like? And the answer is NPR, right? NPR is the only, or, and public radio in general, I suppose. Public radio takes that intimacy. I, I find the greatest amount of connective intimacy with public radio for exactly that reason, because it doesn't have to lean into that, that broad, diverse demographic as much as commercial radio does, yeah. Okay, that I think you guys is going to do it. Oh, Skeep was saying that her first podcast was the podcast, excuse me, was the Scott and the Sassanac, the Outlander podcast that I did a couple of years ago. That's excellent. Wow. And Jenna saying, I only really started listening to podcasts in 2016 with Gilmore Guys and Dustin. I've been listening to Night Vale for years. Gilmore Guys is a very good podcast. And obviously, I'm very proud of the work that we did over on Dusted too. Someday I'm going to get the opportunity to talk about Buffy again. I really want to do that. I just could talk about Buffy all the time. So at some point, we'll, we'll do that too. Good. All right, I have to wrap that up. I'm already five minutes over my time. A quick recap then of what we're doing this week on Point North Media. Tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, the Between Worlds class, the fifth session, the penultimate session in our Between Worlds class, looking at the, the roots of modern fantasy in the 19th century, George MacDonald and the Princess and the Goblin, looking at J.M. Barry and Peter Pan and Peter Wendy specifically. Tomorrow night, uh, that's Tuesday, February the 6th, at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central, Dear Mr. Potter, 42, Unforgivable, going all the way through to the end of the Unforgivable Curses. On Thursday night, that's February the 8th, 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central. There and back again, 51, The Crown of the Fallen King, taking us through to the end of The Crossroads. And then on Friday at 10 p.m., uh, that's February 9th, I should say, at uh, 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central, we are going to continue with A Wrinkle in Time, take just another extra week to talk about A Wrinkle in Time. I'm very eager to do that thing, our penultimate discussion of that fantastic book. That is going to do it for this week on Point North. As ever, you can get in touch with me by emailing pointnorthmedia at gmail.com or by stopping by the shiny Point North Media forums, pointnorthmedia.com slash forum. You can head on over there and join the discussion. There's a lot going on. In fact, one of the things that I'm doing this afternoon is heading on over to the forum and catching up with all of the many discussions that I missed yesterday during my day off. Just a terrible, terrible thing. Guys, thank you all so much for being here. Thank you all so much for your support and for your enthusiasm. If you have a dollar to spare and you don't yet support Point North Media, head on over to patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia or coffee.com, ko-fi.com slash pointnorthmedia or just paypal.me slash pointnorthmedia. Pledge a dollar, a couple of dollars, five dollars, however much you have to help support the production of independent content here on the internet. I am always very grateful. I am, as I have said before and will say again, I should get a t-shirt that says essentially, I am a machine for turning money into podcasts. That is my role in life. And I couldn't be happier about it, you guys. Thank you so much for joining me. I will see you all again very soon. Until then, take care. Have a great day. Bye.